Again, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 14 to 22. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to ask you to keep your eyes and ears open today as we talk about idolatry. Uh, Last week when we looked at uh, the Word of God in in light of uh, some of the things that were happening all around us, it's kind of hard not to see uh, the events of the last couple of weeks. Uh, and the other side of this, some of the things that we talk about with this passage are things that are also going on all the time, but we may not realize it. Kind of going under the radar. So it's different, um, but under the radar even in our own hearts. Not just in other people, but in us. And um, I don't know if you've ever read the book before. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And in that, uh, basically... It's written from the perspective of a demon training another demon on how to, how to trip people up. And, um, and I think C.S. Lewis would even say this, uh, not that he did a poor job or anything, I'm not going to criticize C.S. Lewis, but I bet you he didn't even do it justice. We have an enemy who is the father of liars. And uh, we can be certainly tricked into thinking that we're all good, Everything's great and wonderful. We want to believe that of our own selves from our own hearts. We don't even hardly need temptation to start thinking that way. Uh, but we have an enemy. Um, I doubt many of us, we look at it this way, we think about idolatry. I doubt many of us, uh, or any of us here, went to the pagan temple of Aphrodite this week to worship, to bow down, to eat the meat that was uh, burned and sacrificed to her. I, I, I'm pretty confident in saying I don't think any of us did that this week. However... It would be foolish for us to look at this passage and say, well, it's not me. Uh, because there are other kinds of idolatries, other forms of idolatries of a different sort that all of us were confronted with this week. So today, from Scripture, we're going to see this uh, command to flee from idolatry. Verse 14, uh, we see the theme first uh, for this passage. It says, therefore... My beloved, flee from idolatry. When we see this, therefore, from verse 13, we know it means this. Therefore, since, since God has provided you a way of escape. And the way of escape, remember, is to run the race. And to run it in order to obtain the prize. Run to win. Run to win the prize. And that prize is Jesus Christ himself. So therefore, since pursuing Christ is the path of victory, flee from idolatry. Or we could say it the other way around. Instead of your pursuit of idolatry, or instead of just hanging around while you think about it, flee. Flee from idolatry. And the way you flee from idolatry is to run in your pursuit of Christ. You say this, idleness is not the answer to idolatry. Running the race set before you, pursuing Christ, is how we flee idolatry. You're running somewhere, not aimlessly. Now in the middle of this verse, Paul refers to the church as my beloved. And we know this church had some issues, didn't it? Good thing we don't. But this church had some issues. And we've seen some pretty uh, self-centered things going on, and we'll continue to see that as we continue to work through the rest of this book. But Paul, knowing that these Christians had put their faith and trust in Christ alone, 
for their salvation, counted them his brothers and sisters in Christ. He didn't have a greater fondness, a greater allegiance to others from outside the church who maybe shared the same hobbies, the same interests, different things like that. He loved the ones on whom God had poured out his love in grace and forgiveness, uh, warts and all. Confident in God's promise to make these believers more and more like Christ. And just a quick reminder for us, all of the people out there in the world that we might meet, whether we like athletics or we like politics or we like uh, finances, we like whatever our interests are out there in the world, there's nobody out there that has more in common with you than your brothers and sisters Christ here at the church. Teenagers, your best friends, make them be people from here who also love Jesus. That's more important. That is everything more in common with you than anything else that this world can throw at us. I encourage you in that. And, and Paul's love for the church brought about a sense of urgency. Urgency. Do you hear the urgency in these words? Run the, way, the race to win. Run the race to win. Escape temptation. Flee idolatry. He's not saying, you know, that may not be the best idea. Or, hey, I, I was thinking maybe. No, he's saying, run. Escape. Flee. Why? Because he loves them. Because he loves them. He's speaking the truth to them in love. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So we don't say, boy, if I say that to him, I'm going to hurt him, and I love him too much. No, no, no. You love them, therefore you speak. You help. You encourage. You warn. Okay, so in this, this passage today, Paul is encouraging the church whom he loves to flee from idolatry. Pursue Christ. Flee from idolatry. And because God has commanded us to love him with our whole heart, soul, our mind, and our strength, Paul doesn't just say, flee from idolatry because I said so. And I'm Paul. And I'm the apostle. And I planted that church. So you do what I say. It's not like that at all. Instead, he calls on them to think. To reason to judge and consider according to the scriptures why it is only right to flee. And the reasoning has to do with identity. Think who we are. And fellowship, communion, community, who we are. Think our identity. Our plural, collective, identity, singular. So the reasoning has to do with identity, has to do with fellowship, communion, and lordship. Our allegiance. Not just who we are, but also whose we are. So church, let's reason together. Verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge. Think evaluate and come to a decision. Judge for yourselves what I say. 
the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? That word means a fellowship, a communion in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, meaning Jesus Christ, the bread of life, who took on flesh a body and dwelt among us, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So we see that context. It doesn't mean we have to have a huge piece of bread that we break off for everybody who's here when we do communion. It means Christ, the one bread. Okay? Paul's referring here, of course, to the Lord's Supper. And more importantly, what the Lord's Supper represents. So Jesus took the disciples, remember, to the upper room to eat the Passover meal for the last time before the for-all-time Passover lamb, Jesus himself would be sacrificed as payment for our sin. And during that final Passover meal, Jesus took the cup, and the third cup in the Passover meal celebration is called the cup of blessing. And he told his disciples that the cup, the contents thereof, represented his blood referring to his shed blood for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And Jesus took bread and broke it and told his disciples, this is, this represents my body. Jesus took on flesh. He lived a sinless life. He became our spotless lamb. And he became our sacrifice. The just dying for the unjust, his blood being shed, and God's wrath for my sin and for your sin was completely satisfied at the cross. And I don't want to go into too much detail on the Lord's Supper quite yet because it's going to come up again in chapter 11. But why is Paul bringing it up here in chapter 10? What is he getting at here? When we participate in the Lord's Supper, when we take communion, what are we saying? Well, when the Jews celebrated or celebrate Passover— They were identifying with their ancestors and identifying with one another. When thinking of their ancestors, it's not them, it's we. And and guess what's true of all of us? Guess how each one of us were saved? The rich, the poor, the man, the woman, every tribe— every tongue, every nation, every sinner who becomes a child of God does so the same same way. By God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. There is equal footing. We are all in an equal place at the foot of the cross. Remember, taking communion is not eating and drinking Jesus literally or even semi-figuratively, in order to get more grace, to get more holy, to get closer to good enough to get to heaven. Some people believe that when they eat the bread or when they drink from the cup, that God's grace, if you think about the definition of grace, that ceases to be grace, that they get a little bit more heavenly, a little bit more righteous, a little bit cleaner. That's not right. When we observe the Lord's Supper together, we are participating in a picture. We are all partakers 
benefactors of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. And therefore, we are displaying our unity together with Christ and our unity together as a body of believers in Christ. In much the same way that baptism serves as our initial public identification in Christ, identifying with him after our conversion, communion serves as our ongoing identification in Christ, both within the body of the church and all of us as the body, the church. And this is, this is why we want to wait until we can all be together in one room before we observe the Lord's Supper together. We want the whole body made up of many individuals who have already individually identified themselves with Christ through baptism. We want the whole body to be together when the body identifies as the body. And we can look at this passage two ways too. We can, we can think about the body of Christ that is the universal church, all believers, and there's the body of Christ made visible, the local church. And someone might ask the question, well, how should we take this? How do we apply this if we're thinking universal church versus local church? And then questions about church membership, parachurch organizations, getting baptized at camp or on vacation or taking communion at the hospital with the chaplain, all that kind of stuff comes up. And we're not going to preach a sermon on that right now. Amen? I realize we're on a bit of a tangent here, but I will say this. Who is Paul writing this letter to? The church at Corinth. And in chapter 11... When he's talking about the Lord's Supper again and participating in it, he says, when you come together as a church. So anyways, we definitely have brothers and sisters in Christ who do not attend here, who are not members of First Baptist Church, whom we love and can serve and be served by. And we have, we have though, covenanted together. We, First Baptist Church, has covenanted together and grow together and identify before through baptism and along with, in communion, this church that is the First Baptist Church of Mount Pleasant. Uh, we are not a bunch of individual people who happen to get a kick out of going to 1802 East High Street on Sunday mornings. We are a church. And we identify together as a church. We identify together in the body and as the body of Christ. We are united together in Christ. Our unity is rooted and founded in Christ and in Christ alone. Notice this. The last time Paul really used any singular pronouns is up in verse 12. And that's the verse that says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It's kind of telling, isn't it? Outside of that verse, everything else here is in the plural. The collective you. The southern y'all. Individualism does not compute in the body of Christ. Some people like to say, you know, my faith is just, it's a personal matter. What I think about these things is just a personal matter. I don't like to share it. I don't like to talk about it with others. I'm sorry, but that's wrong. That kind of faith is not the faith that Scripture teaches or commands. We're in this together. We're in this together. And Satan wants us to use uh, terrible things that people do to make us want to protect ourselves from the church even. 
to separate and to isolate ourselves, we think for our own safety. Of course, that assumes that I could never do something that would hurt another. That's certainly not true. Uh, But we don't take communion to remember what the church did for us in our salvation. Or to remember how great people were to us and how great we are going to make ourselves by being faithful to eat and drink. That's not what it's about. We are remembering that we are united together in Christ in spite of ourselves. Based on what he has done. And looking forward to what God has promised to do when Christ returns. Do this in remembrance of me until when? Until Christ returns. So, if we do the Lord's Supper right, if we do it right, people in our church should be repenting. It should be a call and a reminder to us to seek out reconciliation, to forgive people. And if people participate in the Lord's Supper, if they don't do those things, when they are in sin and refusing to do the things that Christ followers do when they sin, they should be excluded by the church from participating. Uh, Sometimes we might think that letting someone take communion when they're not living for God, when they're uh, actively disobeying Him and rebelling against Him, that'll be some kind of a help to them spiritually. That if they drink the cup and if they eat the bread, maybe that'll help them and lift their spirits and make them better. But that's false doctrine. That thinking comes from the false gospel of receiving grace for salvation through the act of taking communion or Eucharist. If we let someone take communion when they are actively in sin without any kind of church discipline, we are only lying to them by implying that they're good to identify with Christ as their Lord and their Savior while they are living in rebellion against him. And if a person person can do that on an ongoing basis, without hesitation, without pause, continuing to sin, continuing to reject the authority of God, continuing to... Uh, do wrong to others and continuing to take communion and be a part of trying to be a part of the everyday life of the church as if both of them just go on without any hesitation without any pause without any uh, understanding of the fact that this is not right that's really just more evidence that they aren't converted at all their eyes haven't been opened they're still blind and if we let people do that kind of a thing on an ongoing basis if we're hesitant to talk to people because of how we fear it might go, what are we communicating? Do we care? Do we genuinely love them? Remember, perfect love casts out fear. So, big picture from these three verses. We are a united body of believers, identifying together in and with the body of Christ by God's grace through the sacrifice of Jesus. In other words, we are the body of Christ. We are the church. We are followers of Jesus. And followers of Jesus follow Jesus together. Now it brings up our topic of consideration number two that Paul gives. Verse 18. Consider. The word here means observe. Another way to say, think about this. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And the answer to that is yes. In the same way that when we take communion together, we are communing together as a body of believers. When Israel uh, sacrificed at the altar, 
when they ate the meat together afterwards, that was a showing of fellowship, togetherness. And Paul's writing this as a rhetorical question. When they would sacrifice animals, the, some of that meat afterward would go to the priest, some of the meat would go to those who were uh, bringing the offering, and they fellowship together afterward in that, in that time. So verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? The first answer to that is no. Idols are make-believe, right? They don't actually exist. But then he goes on. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer not to nothing, but to demons. Not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. We say, wait, what? That just took a turn. Back in chapter 8, remember, Paul began addressing this question from the church about eating meat that had been offered to idols. And some were considered to have a strong conscience. They were thinking clearly and knew that idols were fake and that that, that meat was just meat. They should just go ahead and eat it up. It's just meat. Some in the church were considered weak in their conscience and didn't want to have anything to do with any kind of meat that had anything to do with idol worship. But based on verse 18, it seems like what Paul's referring to here in chapter 10 goes beyond that. This is not picking up meat at the market, at the store, uh, that happens to have come from a pagan temple, just the leftovers. This is meat being eaten along with the act of worship at the pagan temple. Some of these Christians had mistakenly taken their supposed strength, their strong consciences, to the point that they were actually going to the pagan temple, participating in the worship, and eating that meat. And in their mind, as their defense, they still said, well, these idols don't even exist. What's the deal? Now, perhaps they just saw it as a way to meet people in the community. Perhaps even an evangelism strategy. But Paul says no. The Lord disagrees with this. It is true that idols are nothing. That part's true. I'll listen to this from Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 17. All who fashion idols are nothing. The things that they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know, and they, that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They will be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Do you see the word that keeps repeating here? The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arms. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. That's not very godlike. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars. He chooses a cypress tree or an oak. He lets it grow among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Who brought the rain? God. Who makes trees grow? God. Who gave man his life and breath? God. Verse 15 starts to throw in some extra irony here. It becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of that tree and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he, breaks, he bakes bread. He makes his dinner. He, and he also makes a god and worships it. One tree, part of it for the, put in the furnace, part of it to bake my bread, 
and part of it to worship. Half of it he burns in the fire, half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied, he warms himself and says, aha, I'm warm, I've seen the fire, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. Sounds ridiculous, right? It's meant to in this passage. The Corinthians who consider themselves strong of conscience and accurate in their assessment of the idolatry going on around them, they were right to an extent. But then Paul also reminds them it's not just nothing. There's demonic involvement and activity going on behind this idolatry. Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrificed to demons who were no gods, to gods they'd never known. Leviticus 17, 7 says of Israel, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons. Idols are fake. There's no God but the one true God. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a battle going on for your hearts, for your minds. And if an idol will keep you blind and dumb, then our enemy will use that readily. Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We certainly don't wrestle against wood and stone. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the major warning here to us should be this, and I'll address this more in a few minutes. Just because an idol doesn't claim to have anything to do with the supernatural or demonic, it doesn't mean there isn't something demonic going on. Just because somebody says, I don't believe in God, and there is no such thing as supernatural, doesn't mean that they are apart from demonic activity. Truth is not what I feel. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. Reality. Satan is a liar. What better lie than to convince us, to convince so much of our civilization, Western civilization, that there's no such thing as supernatural. That atheism is neither good nor bad since it doesn't claim to side with God or with the devil. That's a lie. Do we see that? And Jesus said you're either for him or against him. There is no neutral. We don't get a pass on judgment just because we decided he doesn't exist. That is humanism. That is idolatry. That is demonic. And in agreement with Christ, Paul says in verse 21... You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Realize here, Paul's, Paul's saying this, Christians who saw themselves as strong because they knew the idols were nothing had decided since they knew better they could go in and participate in something that God had strictly forbidden. That was foolishness. Paul asks them, are you stronger than God? Do you get to decide what's right and wrong? Are you in charge here? Are you so smart that God just sits back and marvels at your wondrous knowledge and intellect? God has bought us with a price. The precious price of his son and he 
rightly in his place, has commanded us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of it. I would venture to say that all of us have probably broken that command already today. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. And God's jealousy is not a petty or a wicked jealousy. Uh, Oprah. Oprah used to go to church when she was growing up. And in her testimony, and it's, that's what it is, the testimony, regardless of what you believe, the reason why she justifies her belief system is that somebody preaching when she was growing up said that God was jealous. And in her mind, she decided, jealousy? Well, how are kids jealous? There's a toy in the floor, and it may not belong to either one of them. But as soon as one of them gets it, the other's jealous, right? And that's a little petty, immature, childish kind of jealousy. Is that the kind of jealousy that God is conveying? No. God's jealousy is not like that. That's an example of uh, the idea of deconstruction, that's a, that's a buzzword right now. People growing up in church, and they start thinking about deconstructing their idea, this, this uh, building that has been put up, the scaffolding around it, if you will, of what they believe. But you see, if my idea of God's jealousy is a human type of jealousy, a sinful type of jealousy, my view of God is wrong. And if my view of God is wrong, I can easily deconstruct that. That doesn't mean God doesn't exist. doesn't mean that he isn't good just because I think something. I might be wrong. And that's something that's hard to stomach. But God's jealousy isn't wrong. He created us. He redeemed us while we were yet sinners. Christ loved us and redeemed us. He has raised us from death to life. He has adopted us. We are the bride of Christ. And talk about jealousy. Is it right for a husband to be jealous for his wife? For a wife to be jealous for her husband? Yes. We are the bride of Christ. No one else can have us. Why would we want anyone or anything else to have us? Think about this. This is not just don't do bad stuff. Who is like our God? Does anybody else really compare? Is there anyone better? Even if the demons create something for our eyes to behold, whatever greatness that seems uh, to be there, to be enjoyed, all of it's a lie. Concocted to keep the blind blind. And to render the seeing ineffective and fruitless. But remember, we're either for or against Christ. We don't get to decide that we're just ineffective. There is no neutral. So if we're mesmerized by the lure of an idol, we aren't just ineffective or unfruitful. We will become effective. There will be fruit for the enemy. That ought to cause us to pause, but not for long. You better run to Christ. So here's the argument from this passage, from these verses. 
Flee from idolatry. You are in Christ. You, all the church together, in Christ. And you cannot be in Christ and in fellowship with demons through idolatry. So flee from idolatry. That's the picture. Now, with that in mind, again, as I said before, none of us went to the temple of Aphrodite this week. So let's talk about what idolatry looks like in our culture, in our day, in our hearts. And let me start that conversation, of course, with Scripture. So two verses, or three. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So it's not even like a trying to figure this verse out. It says it right there. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness can also be translated as greed. It means having a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions. This is idolatry. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Oh, don't make such a big deal of it. That's not a big deal. They're they're doing all right. With tears. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God, little g, is their belly. And they glory in their shame. Remember Isaiah 44? With minds set on earthly things. Their God is their belly to fulfill their appetite for any physical desires. It's not just a sexual thing. It can be that, but it can refer to any desire. Money, food, fine clothing, popularity, their physique, the trophies, maybe even a place of prominence in the church. Could be any of those things. And I hate to single anybody out in this, but just think about like LeBron and Michael, LeBron, James, Michael, Jordan, okay? They're very obviously public figures. But think of all the time, all the energy, all the money that goes into or went into what they strive to accomplish. And there's the argument, right? Which one of them is the greatest of all time? How many hours have people spent arguing between those two, which is the greatest of all time? Who's the GOAT? Right? That's what that means, greatest of all time. There you go. You're welcome. What does the scripture say? They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Imagine all the awards, all the money, the pictures, the posters, the trophies, statues of their heads on a wall encased in the hall of fame and if they love that stuff more than they love jesus it's just a hall of shame do we believe that and a lost person's choice of idolatry just becomes that person's path to hell paul tripp says it this way anything in creation that claims the place in my heart that only God should have is an idol. 
Anything in creation that claims the place in my heart that only God should have is an idol. And realize, who gets to decide what that place is? Who gets to decide how much of the place he gets? Say, oh yeah, God, I'm putting you on the throne of my heart. It's just that I've decided your throne is this much and everything else is that much. Whoa, who's in charge? Who is in charge? Is that not itself idolatry? And, and by the way, who made the decision there? Me. And in a culture that doesn't even believe in the supernatural, finding out what our idols are can be even harder. We don't have names for it like Aphrodite, Artemis, Zeus. We don't do that. So I have to ask myself, is it money? Food? Having a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a husband or a wife? Keeping them happy? Is it my kids? My job? What holds sway in my life? Who controls my thinking? What gets me up in the morning and motivates me? What or who can, without even seeming to blink an eye, seemingly convert me all over again into a non-Christian in that moment? Like I have no interest in Christ. Like I would rather those people like me approve of me than that they could enjoy Jesus eternally. And again, I hate to make a list, but, but here we go. How many songs can I quote that talk about boys or girls or trucks or my lost dog? How many? And I'm pointing fingers at myself too on this. I don't really like that kind of music, but pointing fingers at myself too. How many stats can I remember from my favorite team? How up to the minute am I with my stocks? How many more friends or followers do I have than that other person that I tend to compare myself with? How often am I willing to break the budget to go to my favorite restaurant again? And this one for sure. How many times have people not done what I expected or desired and therefore felt justified in pouring out my wrath against them? All of these things and more can become idols. I'm not saying they are. Okay, if you listen to a country music song on the way here, I'm not saying you're an idolater of country music. Okay? None of these things in and of themselves are idols, but they can become idols. They can be. The last one certainly is. And if idolatry comes down to my greed, my covetousness, fill in my belly, who would I be believing that any of these things exist to please? Me. It's myself. This is the ultimate exchange of glory. And then you look at our culture and you take the idea of secular humanism, which just means that humans are capable of morality. We are in ourselves inherently good. We can be good. And self-fulfillment can be had in and of ourselves without God. God is unnecessary. We take that kind of an idea, mentality into consideration. And then the things that come with it, like moral relativism. Believing that there's different sets of values of right and wrong that can be equally valid for different people in different situations, in different cultures. You might say, it might look good in a, in a book, right? To say, you know, cannibalism is a terrible idea in America. 
but who am I to say that it's a problem or, or that it's problematic in a place like New Guinea? That sounds lovely. But when somebody comes knocking on your door with fork in hand, all of a sudden your sense of morality snaps into shape. The perceived importance, like we talked about last week, of affirmation, self-esteem, who is my neighbor so they can be nice to me. All of these put together, they're all connected together, and we say, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh. And this stuff is everywhere, right, church? That mindset, that thinking is in churches. It is, it is, it is pumping through our government. It is in our schools. It is on our television screens. It's in the movie theater. And, and, and it comes from somewhere. We have an enemy. And we have to watch out how far is it rooted into my own heart. It's almost like something was behind all this seemingly non-spiritual, atheistic, amoral, but in reality, demonic, idolatrous, anti-God way of thinking. And you look at so many of the people on Christian TV, let's go into that category, Christian radio, Christian this, Christian that, and so many churches today who have turned God into a supernatural power that exists to make me wealthy, to make me healthy, to make me comfortable, to give me the good life that I've defined. And John MacArthur writes it this way, worshiping the true God the wrong way is idolatry. Example, we talked about this last week, what did Israel do when Moses was missing in action up on the mountain? Let's make ourselves a golden calf. We'll call him Yahweh. We'll offer the sacrifices to him. All the priests will keep their jobs, but we're going to do it our way. Idolatry. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, same word, idolatry, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. It's coming. 2 Corinthians eleven twelve through 15 And what am I doing? What I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claims of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Hey man, I love Jesus too. No, you don't. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Should it really be that weird to us that there are people who call themselves apostles today? And what do they tend to teach? False doctrine. It's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. We don't have enough time to go into all this right now as bad as I would like to, just to warn you. But please realize that people like a Joel Osteen, a T.D. Jakes, Stephen Furtick, Bill Johnson from Bethel Church, Carl Lentz from Hillsong, Paula White, might have heard her name in the news, and many, 
many others. You can go home and turn the TV on, flip on TBN, and you might see one of them when you get home today. These people aren't just Christians who are missing the mark a little bit and need a course correction. These teachers are teaching a false gospel and are therefore acting as enemies of God. Flee from idolatry. If they would repent, praise God. Wonderful. We want that. Love your enemies. But realize the things that they're saying are demonic, anti-gospel, anti-biblical, anti-Christ. Wolves in sheep's clothing. You might say, well, I've heard some of those people. I haven't heard anything that they said yet. It's secretly brought in. They want to appear as godly Christian people, but their message is anti-Christ. Christians know the word of God. We have it. I'm not the authority. Don't believe all this stuff just because I said so or because somebody else said so or somebody wrote it in a book. We live in a free country. Anybody can publish whatever they want. What's the authority? God's word. God is the authority. Let's worship God by listening to him through his word. In this passage even, Paul didn't say, listen to me because I'm the apostle Paul. Let us reason and consider together. And he brings these things from the word to our attention. So, all of these things being considered, whether it appears to come from the world's philosophies, uh, Eastern religions, Western enlightenment, things like secular humanism, whether it comes from a terrible twisting and abuse from scripture, rooted in a materialistic, greedy mindset with the word of faith and uh, prosperity gospel type movements, or even when it comes, and this is where we might miss it the most, even when it comes simply from our own heart's desires for things like approval, acceptance, ease, or anything else we begin to desire and that we delight in more than God when we're willing to sin in order to get it. Christians, we are to flee from idolatry. And praise God, Jesus didn't just tell us to run in circles, to run and jump and hope something doesn't hit you. We flee from idolatry. We escape temptation by running to Jesus. There is a place to there is a rock to find shelter underneath. There is a prize at the end of this race. Let's run to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. God, help us. Help us. There's so much that we can hear, so much that is being said. A desire for us to be able sometimes just to kick back and be passive and, and to watch movies and to listen to music and, and not even realize how much we might be accosted, taught, uh, impacted, persuaded even. God, may we have, uh, by your grace, eyes to see these things. And not just have a we'll get around to it mindset, but an attitude of flee and escape, and run. Lord, you have an intensity, a passion, a jealousy, 
for your people and for your glory. May we also share in that intensity and fight for our joy, fight for our purity, fight for your glory, fight for the good of our brothers and sisters around us, fight for the goodness, uh, the joy, the life that our children can have. Fight for the salvation of our neighbors, of our friends, of our co-workers. That we would, Lord, kneel to no one but you, as you rightly deserve. God, work in us in this way that we might grow. We thank you that in this there is joy. There is joy. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.